The UK is now out of the single market and the customs union with new hoops to jump through. It's time to look forward rather than back. So just when we need them, today we hear from two guests with their top tips of how to navigate our changing trade relationship with the EU. Welcome to the latest edition of Business Class Money Minutes, powered by American Express. One of the analogies we use a lot is the old joke about how do you escape from a bear in the woods? You run faster than your friend. The companies that adapt fastest and are even just a little bit more efficient or quick off the mark than their competitors are the ones that are going to to get through this. Hello, I'm Nigel Cassidy. And I'm Kate Bassett. Kate, this edition really couldn't be more timely, could it? It's all about finding our way through that unfinished business that is Brexit, one barrier at a time. And as always, we've lined up a great case study, plus an expert who really understands the hassles facing businesses still trying to get to grips with the changes. We've lined up two of the best in the business when it comes to getting your goods back on the road and delivered safely with all the right post-Brexit paperwork. So Kate, shall we hear from our first guest? Yes, let's. He's Mark Craven, Commercial Director of Forest Fresh Foods, based in Rochdale, Lancashire. They supply soft drinks, confectionery and snacks to shops, wholesalers and fast food outlets. And of course, food is the business sector that saw that 45% fall in exports. So hard times for producers who hit that wall of costly and time-consuming regulations and form-filling. Well, with a base in Belgium and a ton of experience in distribution, this business knows many of the workarounds. Welcome, Mark Craven. So tell us a bit about where your products come from, who are your customers and some of the biggest challenges for the business post-Brexit. Forest Fresh Foods, one of the largest independent wholesalers in the UK of FMCG products, um, in particular soft drinks in a region of 35 million turnover, followed by confectionery, alcohol and various other FMCG products, which we source mainly from blue chip companies and the manufacturers that produce them. Our customer base is quite varied. We have multiple arms to the business, which starts in the UK out into 45 different countries around the globe. We have Forest Food NV, which is in Belgium. That's our central distribution hub for for Europe. And we've now got Forest Foods SA and we've got warehousing in Germany as well. So given you're such an international business, what are some of the biggest challenges that Brexit has thrown up? The single biggest headache that we're incurring at the moment would be border control. Paperwork required is causing long delays, pushing transport prices up. You've also got ports that are dealing with the same product from the same manufacturers in different ways in the same country. You could send two trucks carrying identical loads from different ports. One would get in and one would be stuck for over a week. It is getting better, but it's nowhere near perfect. And Mark, we know that it's problems like this, which have made food producers in particular really find life difficult. I mean, what, 26 steps I read for some of them to get stuff to their customers. Can you kind of just sort of spell out in a bit more detail the kind of cost increases you faced? I mean, obviously sending extra lorries, like you've just said, is going to cost money. But to sort all this customs and paperwork, can you quantify it? The main cost increase is transportation, like you just said. We used to send trucks from the UK to the Netherlands for roughly around £300 per backload. 
that has gone up into the region of £1,500, which if you look at that cost per case on a, on a case of soft drinks, it's almost 50 pence per case increase. So then all of a sudden you're not as price competitive and your sales are dropping off because you're fetching other people in Europe back into play again. It is now down around five to six hundred euros now. So the prices are starting to steady out. Like I said, the biggest cost impact has been the cost of transport going up into into Europe. Mark, I'm curious to know, you talked about this spike in transportation costs. You mentioned specifically the UK to the Netherlands. How did you cover those costs? Did you have to slash costs elsewhere? Did you put your prices up? What did you do? Prices have to go up. That's the only way you can do it. The manufacturer aren't going to drop their prices. Generally, for a company of our size, we're working on EDLP, which is an everyday low price. We're quite privileged in in the fact that we're actually international partners and global partners with some blue chip companies to a point where they are stuck getting their products into Spain and their country. So the benefit for us is that we have a distribution centre in Belgium where we can clear goods. So, I mean, that base you have in Belgium has become a real competitive advantage for you. Can you just talk us through how you set it up, the costs involved and the steps you went through? Three years ago, we set it up. The cost to us was in a region of setting up um, €120,000. That's taken into account warehousing, travel, accountancy and fees. And then obviously you've got to get stock that you have on the floor, which you're regularly selling out there. We're running everything centrally from the UK at the moment. So we have someone who looks after the warehousing over there. That's the initial cost. The biggest cost was €120,000. That was setting it up 12 months ago. Then we've just got administration fees, which we're kind of utilising our UK harm to in, in our central office in Greater Manchester in Rochdale. We're doing it all from there. All the main directors are involved with the, and our export sales lads that are exporting all over the globe are doing the sales in Europe as well. And that's all done from the UK. Have you had to bring in any new staff to work in the Belgian base? Just the warehouse managers to handle loads in and out. Everything else is done in the UK in our central office. We're pretty much geared up through the cloud and the technology nowadays. We can run our business from our house, which is quite fortunate for us. So Mark, in terms of the warehouse staff that you've had to bring in in your Belgium arm, how much has that cost you? The rough cost for the warehouseman is €30,000, but that was included in the €120,000 setup costs. And then obviously we've got incurred costs per year of, of ongoing rent, which is about €100,000 per year. Would you say then that that initial investment of €120,000 has paid off? Massively. We're turning over this year roughly €3 million of sales in Belgium since we started 12 months through a pandemic. 25% of our total sales is in Europe. The rest is around the globe in export. We're working with companies like the DIT, Department of International Trade. If I could give any advice, speak to them guys if you're struggling with anything for all the information's on their websites. The government websites have been very helpful to us. For, a, say, a smaller company wondering about setting up a base in Belgium or the Netherlands or somewhere on the continent, from your experience, when is that viable and when maybe is it not and it's better to work with a larger company like yours? 
answering for smaller companies out there they're still there they're still exporting but generally the export is not going into europe anyway most of it's going out into africa malaysia hong kong china these countries are the ones where they're aiming there where they need to end the business while things settle down in europe if it's hard for us to get the paperwork and and get things cleared and we're we're 50 million turnover you've been a couple of million turnover trying to just trade goods you're going to struggle so i wouldn't advise it into europe at the moment but what because the num the numbers don't add up yeah, just because the profitability times, you get a wagon stuck on a port for two weeks, trying to clear goods, that's a cost to the goods itself. You know, there's day issues on certain products as well. How did you train up your logistics people then for this new world? It's the unfamiliarity with all these multiple systems and paperwork and things you just have to do. We actually employed someone with, who was super experienced and we put them through their international CPC licensing so that we've actually funded that for them to go through to help our business going forward. Just tell me what CPC licensing is and how much it costs you to do that. <laughs> it's basically so we can carry people's goods on our own vehicles across borders. I'm not an expert on that, but I've just got a rough idea of what it's about. What are the biggest lessons you've learned? What would you have done differently? We've outsourced to try and get our bonded warehouse facility in Belgium now, which means that we can clear goods. And we would have done that two years ago if we knew there was going to be an issue with clearing goods at the borders. We are starting to see a benefit from clearing the goods in Belgium because the blue chip companies can't go direct into the countries like I were mentioning. So now we can clear the goods in Belgium. We're then sending them into Spain. So we're mentioning this now to other blue chip companies that are struggling getting into countries. It's not a long-term strategy where we're going to benefit millions and millions of pounds because we don't. It's more of we're getting our products out there. We're in the interim. We can make some money from distributing goods for manufacturers in the UK because they can't do it direct themselves, believe it or not. So, yeah. But never too late for any small company to try and do that? I think it'd be harder for a small company because a small company, you have to have a base camp, you have to have warehousing, you have to have, it's quite a costly affair. We've actually paid for a company to come in and do all the work for us to make sure that we do it right. The thing is with that is you're working with government specifications, any kind of clearing goods. We've just been awarded our WOGA license, which is a license to buy duty suspended So we've already been working in the UK on that. We've been awarded that by the HMRC now. And this is where it sparked the idea to, well, let's do it in in Belgium as well, which is where we've started the ball rolling. It's going to cost quite a few thousand pounds. So a small company might not be able to take that kind of cost. For any small companies out there that are distributing into Europe, There's plenty of companies like us that work with them. We kind of shadow and look after the smaller companies that are out there. We're not a greedy company, so this is where we can help them. So Mark Craven from Forest Foods, that was great. So, I mean, Kate, what do we think of the outstanding lessons here? I think we've really learnt that there's power in preparation. So by setting up their base in Belgium three years ago, cost them €120,000, but actually it's been a real commercial opportunity for them. But he still mentioned long delays, transportation costs, trucks stuck at ports, so there's still challenges to overcome. Absolutely. It was interesting how he talked about their close 
links with manufacturers. They're tapping the expertise of all the people they work with. If you don't know the answer, maybe there's somebody else who does. And of course, all the paperwork he still has to grapple with. We'll be talking about death by paper cuts after the break. Yes, we'll be back shortly when we'll pick the brains of Sally Jones, a leading specialist in trade strategy and Brexit in particular. No matter the size of your business, American Express has your back. Our range of business cards gives you greater control over your cash flow, so you'll have the flexibility to respond to change, chase opportunities and keep growing. Plus, you can earn rewards from your day-to-day spend and invest it back into your business. Visit americanexpress.com slash uk slash business card to learn more. Terms apply. Welcome back to Business Class Money Minutes. Now, we've zoomed in on how one firm's been trading after Brexit. Let's get the bigger picture now. Let's get some practical ideas. Our next guest is steeped in the detail of how firms can adapt to these new realities. So welcome Sally Jones, Trade Strategy and Brexit Leader at EY. So, Sally, we know that uh, almost one in four small business exporters have halted EU shipments for now. That's according to the Federation of Small Businesses. Imports are down by almost a third to just over £6 billion. What do you see as the biggest challenges here? Because we've read about so many, haven't we, and heard about so many over the last few weeks. So businesses found it really difficult to prepare. And that's not their fault. It was because there was still so much uncertainty in the run-up to the end of the transition period, that even businesses that had done everything within their power to get ready found that there were gaps in their planning. What our clients are telling us is that, unsurprisingly probably, customs and supply chain is their biggest issue, but legal and regulatory is coming up close behind, as are tax and VAT matters. Okay, so is it a question of firms just stopping sending stuff altogether while they kind of reconsider their position or things getting delayed or for some a combination of both? It's a combination of both, to be honest, Nigel. If you're, say, just uh, exporting small items and each has to get a kind of type approval, you need to make special arrangements for each. Does that mean that realistically for some people, exporting to the EU just isn't practical? They've got to look at other markets? There are two parts to it, I think. The first is, do you have the resource to do it right and in a compliant fashion? And for some small and medium-sized enterprises, the answer is just a straightforward, no, we don't. We don't have the people with the necessary knowledge or the time to do it. Then you've got a separate question, which is, even if we've got the resource to do it, is each trade still profitable given the increased costs? And again, for some of those trades where the profit margin was slender to start with, it's tipped it into being a non-profitable trade that people just don't want to do going forward. Sally, you talked about the resources to do it right. Can you talk about some of those resources that small businesses need to help with this paperwork, regulatory issues? Our clients are telling us that the average amount of time it takes to complete all of the formalities has increased from about 30 minutes per consignment to something more like seven hours. There is an element of that which is teething problems and certainly companies are getting better, more slick at completing the necessary paperwork because they know what needs to be filled in, which boxes are relevant, where to get the information from their systems and just generally practice making perfect. But let's be absolutely clear, we're never going to get back to a situation where that seven hours is reduced down to the 30 minutes that they were used to. That's not the fault of business. That's a necessary outcome 
from leaving the single market and the customs union. So the real question for businesses is, do you have people who can spare the time that you need to complete that paperwork? And do they have the necessary knowledge to complete it correctly? You know, obviously, that's a big cost for small businesses. What are the ways around that? We've heard a lot about some companies setting up subsidiaries or branches in the EU. When is that advisable? The companies that are setting up subs in the EU are normally, this is a broad generalisation, but are normally doing it for regulatory purposes. So huge amounts of the EU legislation is set up for consumer protection, their own EU consumer protection. And oftentimes what it says is we want our consumers to be protected. And if something goes wrong in that protection, there has to be somebody, either a company or an individual within the EU, who's on the hook if things haven't gone according to plan. Now, basically, the more regulated a product or service is, the more substance the EU wants to have within the EU. And for some businesses, the amount of substance is pretty light. It's probably an address that an EU consumer could write to if, I don't know, the handle falls off their shopping trolley or something. For other products which are more regulated, then it's a bigger request that the EU makes to have substance. So to give you a real life example, one of my clients makes electrical equipment that goes in people's homes. And summarising the directive in a nutshell, what it says is, if you make electrical equipment that go in people's homes, make sure that it doesn't electrocute people and it doesn't burn their property to the ground, which is not unreasonable. But you need to have proper substance in the EU so that if something goes wrong, we can get you. You're on the hook and you can be punished. And obviously the substance needed in that case is an awful lot more than the shopping trolley handle falling off situation. So as a very broad rule of thumb, the closer something is to being able to do you damage, the more likely it is to be heavily regulated and the more likely you are to need to have substance in the EU and the more likely it is that it's going to have to be subsidiary level substance. The only other real alternative is to find a third party who'll take on your regulatory obligations. And some people have managed to do that, but the third parties typically want to charge you a pretty hefty fee to do that. Sally, I was going to ask you about this question of having to radically change what you do. I would imagine it's very easy to be really upset by all the disruption, the fact that you can't trade with all the partners you used to. But I was looking at, for example, there was a a firm in the news that made organic sausages, very large numbers for supermarkets. They would export British produce to be processed in Bavaria. It then comes back, it's re-imported and then sold on. I think the reason they gave was that they hadn't found a factory that could process here in the UK. But in fact, if you just change the way you worked, or I say just, I mean, it's a a big deal if you've got a sausage factory. But I mean, in a sense, the winners are going to be those who accept we are where we are, however painful it is. One of the analogies we use a lot is the old joke about how do you escape from a bear in the woods? You run faster than your friend. And there's a bit of that here as well. The companies that adapt fastest and are even just a little bit more efficient or quick off the mark than their competitors are the ones that are going to to get through this. You're right, there is a chunk of accepting that life has changed. And the companies we're talking to at the minute are going through that teething problem phase and are working out which ones are the teething problems that you get used to and you get better at and which are the structural problems which actually make things so difficult that you do need to adapt on a more permanent basis what you do. So for small companies that feel like they're falling behind in this post-Brexit era, um, what steps can they take? So the first thing I would do if I was such a business is look at whether you can get access to the government training grants that are available for customs training. 
They're reasonably generous. It's £2,000 per company. Worth looking into because then you can use that funding to access customs training at hopefully no additional cost to yourself. That would be one thing. The second thing that's worth doing is the trade bodies almost universally have done a really, really good job at working out what the new barriers to trade are by sector. And so if you're a member of a trade body, do check out what's available on their websites because they're really, really good. The third piece of advice I would give is to check out what's available on government websites. Now, the gov.uk website is big and unwieldy and quite difficult to navigate. But it's worth investing a bit of time to do that because it's good. And in particular, actually, the Information Commission Officers website is really, really good about what companies need to do to ensure that they can keep trading electronically between EU and the UK. So if you've got like a, an online website that EU consumers access, then have a look at the ICO's Brexit pages because not only have they got excellent advice written in plain English, they've even got contract terms that you can literally cut and paste into your own contracts if you want to so you don't have to get somebody else involved in doing that. And what about where, say, you are getting involved more with operations on the continent? You might require staffing over there. You're certainly going to need to organise visas. How can you deal with all that if you're not used to it? Speak to your professional advisor. Even small firms will have an accountant and probably a solicitor who are all very much looking to find opposite numbers and equivalents that they trust in the EU member states who can advise businesses on that kind of setup. I'm both, this is how cool I am, I'm both an accountant and a tax advisor. Whoa. <laughs> well, I know. I am not the most cool person in the world, let's face it. But the point is, I couldn't begin to advise on setting up a business in France because I'm not familiar with French law. So you need to find somebody in whatever country you want to set up who's good at that. So if, like a lot of companies, you do decide you need some kind of base in the Netherlands, say, what sort of costs would be involved? It varies quite a bit depending on your sector and how much you have to have in the EU for regulatory purposes or otherwise. It might be as straightforward as having an address that's monitored so that if somebody does send a letter to that address, a sensible response is provided. It could involve setting up uh, with a company and an employee, or it could be something more substantial. It could be that you decide you're going to actually, for very sensible reasons, give proper analysis to having a, a subsidiary with multiple employees doing multiple activities. Sally, with your accountancy hat on, can you give us any other cost-saving tips for SMEs? This is going to sound really self-interested, but I really believe strongly that the best thing a company can do is to take advice early on because it will stop you falling into bear pits or making mistakes that could be avoided and would cost you money. Generally speaking, taking a little bit of advice early on is much better than having to take a great big chunk of advice at a later stage. So although it might feel counterintuitive, I would definitely say take advice early and listen to it and do what you're told by your advisor, your trusted advisor, because it will create savings in the long run. What's happened? You've gone from having to do a once per month interest at return and prepare invoices so that your shipper knows where your parcel or product or pallet is going to, to having to complete a piece of at least one form, probably more than one form, of multiple, multiple boxes with full information, including commodity codes, volumes, values, requirements, obligations, regulations. I personally don't think we're going to shave that seven hours down to much less than five, maybe four, but it's that kind of ballpark. 
So in terms of trying to save as much money at least as you can, how optimistic are you that businesses can at least get on top of all this and spend as little as possible? From the companies that we've spoken to, about half are planning to push their costs onto consumers. Others are looking to manage other costs internally to maintain profit margins. And some are actively working with their suppliers to find ways across the whole supply chain to reduce costs down. Any other money-saving tips you might have come across which might be useful for firms who are hoping to rise above all this? I would say the number one tip is don't panic. Have in place a person or a team of people who've got some time set aside to deal with matters as they come up. Someone who's senior enough to deal with issues and can take decisions and give that person a bit of bandwidth to manage problems. There is no one problem in Brexit that's insurmountable. It's more because a thousand different issues changed all at the same time. Where are the opportunities for small businesses? I think if I were a small business, I would be looking to other markets. The European Union is always going to be an important trading partner of ours, but there are so many other countries, the rest of the world, to trade with. And although at this point in time, the UK's trading relationships with the rest of the world are very much based on a European Union model, many of them are in the process of being renegotiated and in being renegotiated are being written, rewritten in terms that are far more beneficial for the UK's own facts and circumstances. So heavily service-based economy, expertise in data and technology, exports that are very much built around a British brand like Scotch whisky, for example. If we continue to favour the EU at the expense of the rest of the world, then we'll never be able to tap into those advantages. So kind of lifting your eyes up just a little bit from the immediate to the horizon and, and recognising that there are other markets that could be very lucrative for British businesses, I, I think that's going to be the way forward. Are there any good ways of scoping out the potential in particular areas? What's the best way of finding new routes or new customers? The Department for International Trade has got some really, really good resource. So they've got local offices in all of the geographies of the UK. Just announced a big new office in Darlington, for example, which makes the northeast a really, really attractive, well-resourced place in particular. DIT websites and offices, well worth checking out. Local chambers of commerce will also have quite a lot of information for companies that go and speak to them. And then if you've identified a territory that you think is of interest to you, again, DIT and the Foreign Office have got offices of their own in all of the countries you care to mention. So if you said, for example, I think there's a massive opportunity for us in Indonesia, then DIT will be able to put you in touch with their offices in Indonesia to help you out with that. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sally. So many practical tips there. Nigel, what have been the main lessons for you? Oh, well, I mean, where do we start? I mean, I think uh, I was very struck by that uh, point about uh, not panicking, about the fact that for some businesses, at least, it's not that you can't trade, but it's just too many things you have to fix. So you need to set people, time, staff aside to work through everything and you get a much clearer idea what's possible, what isn't. And uh, open yourself up to new markets, new ways of doing things. Absolutely. You could be swapping Italy for Indonesia. Lots of grants available out there. Help on gov.uk, Department for International Trade. And as Sally said, it's teething problems at the moment, but companies are becoming more slick and agile. So many thanks to our two excellent guests, Mark Craven and Sally Jones. 
In our next episode, we'll be discussing the power of positivity and how leadership tactics can impact your bottom line. Meanwhile, American Express has a world of useful content on everything Brexit-related, including checklists to ensure your supply chain and operations can continue to run smoothly. There's good stuff on how VAT works post-Brexit and inspiration on how other small businesses are managing their Brexit risks. So check out the Business Class Trends and Insights Hub for these latest articles and videos on everything related to small business finances at americanexpress.com slash uk slash business class. Don't forget to subscribe to Business Class Money Minutes, which you'll find wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll never miss an edition. Until next time, from Nigel and me here at Business Class Money Minutes, goodbye and take care.